So uh, welcome to the latest episode of IS Emmercast, and today we've got the pleasure and privilege of uh, some input from Dr. Karen Koss, who's a face and director of the Emergency Medicine uh, Department at Tamworth Regional Referral Hospital. Uh, she's also got significant experience in retrieval medicine and bags of experience in emergency medicine in rural settings as a single doctor and in bigger departments. Earlier this year at the Evidence Review in Emergency Medicine 2021 Karen gave a great presentation with a lot of pearls on the approach to the high-pressure situation uh, in the emergency department, so I thought it would be useful to have her come on and provide her insights around that uh, so we could spread that around our area. So welcome, Karen. Thank you, Andrew. It's a pleasure. So we'll dive right in. Emergency medicine is widely perceived as a high-stress, high-adrenaline occupation, and when people discover that's what you do for a career, they often say, oh, geez, that must be stressful. The people who go into it are often perceived as adrenaline junkies, and yet many of the colleagues I know, and I suspect you know, wouldn't fit that bill, including yourself. Uh, despite that, they enjoy the challenge of the acute and or complex high-stakes case. What's your view on that? It's a good question, Andrew. I, I think a lot of people's perception of what uh, emergency medicine work is really like is pretty skewed. You know, they immediately think of worst case, most dramatic kind of high stakes presentations. And we all know that that's only a small but important percentage of what emergency doctors do every day. For mine, I think the most important characteristic of a successful emergency medicine doctor is not so whether much whether they thrive on adrenaline, but their ability to deal with uncertainty. I think you know, being able to be flexible and make decisions when you don't have all the information and be able to live with a degree of uncertainty and chaos around you, I think they're the most important sort of characteristics of a, of a successful emergency doctor. It's interesting, isn't it? You don't hear a lot in training of, of teaching people to deal with or to live with uncertainty. And you just wonder whether, for some people, it's an, an inherent component of their personality. But certainly my perspective is it's something that's uh, that's learnt from experience. So pressure or stress comes in a lot of forms in the ED, and uncertainty certainly could be one of those. And it relates largely to the interaction between the clinician and the environment, particularly if you're the sort of the leader or team leader in the process. And so without diving into nitty-gritty details, can you describe in broad terms, just so we get a sense of where you perceive stress and high pressure, an event in your work in the last 12 months that you considered stressful or high pressure? Yeah, sure. It, it springs to mind a case just from a couple of weeks ago. I can't, I can't say, in all honesty, that I performed particularly well in this case, but um, there was a, a young person that was unresponsive in a car that pulled up in front of the emergency department. And the thing about this case that made it a higher pressure or higher stress than usual, I think was because there were just these few other little unexpected elements. So I was just working my normal normal shift in ED and someone came running into the, into the main waiting room and sort of yelling at the staff behind the, the triage area that their family member was um, unconscious. And so the triage nurse ran outside. And for those of you who aren't familiar with our department, there's sort of like a main emergency area has a little dead end roundabout in front of it. And so there was a car stopped in this roundabout where the triage nurse could see that there was somebody slumped sort of in the back. And so they sort of ran back in and pressed a buzzer and got help. 
So it came from being just in the middle of a conversation with someone on the floor to hurrying outside and finding a young man who was arrested in the vehicle. So he was pulled from the car and we commenced CPR, sort of lying on the bitumen out the front of the department. You know, this was sort of in full view of all the passerbys and all the public, the waiting room. Everybody in the waiting room was sort of wanting to have a gawk because they knew that it was happening. Did anybody tap you on the shoulder and complain about the wait? <laughs> Not at that moment. <laughs> but it was, it's, it was interesting. It was these little things, you know, having the family there who were obviously very distressed, picking him up off the bitch and trying to get him onto a bed and into the department really made a big difference to how stressed I felt about the situation. We're so used to having... You know, that pre-warning, the back call that someone's coming. And I think if we'd had a call to say if there was a 30-year-old out of hospital arrest and we had even that minute or two to prepare, it would have been so much less stressful, these little unexpected things that you were caught off guard, that that there was such a big crowd, all those little things that, that really contributed to feeling more pressure than you, norm- you know, than I normally would. Yeah, and sort of working in really in an environment that, that isn't, your usual, even in retrieval, you've got you know, a very different environment to work with, with teams and equipment and stuff around you. When it's uh, when, it's, when it's on the tarmac out in front of the emergency department, that's a, a completely different setup. Yeah, that's right. Like when you're in retrieval, you have your packs and your paramedics. You know, you're familiar with the with where you need to go to get things. So for him, it was like, yeah, let's put, let's get access. Oh, we don't have anything here. Someone's trying to push an arrest, the, the arrest trolley out through the main doors and. It was those, yeah, it was those little things that really made you sort of feel snagged a bit. And it's it, it's like that, um, you, you hit it right on the head when you talked about the interaction between, you know, yourself and the environment. It's that your perception of the problem. If you'd come as a back call as an out-of-hospital arrest or came with a paramedic, even if they'd been picked up from a minute away, it's, it's just a different, you, you have a different perspective going into it than what you do when you sort of, caught off guard or in, a, in that unfamiliar environment. The problem's still the same. It's still a 30-year-old arrested man for you don't know what reason, but it's your perception of it that changes so much. Yeah, yeah. My experience is generally, and for better or worse, when you're facing circumstances like that, my thinking becomes, I don't know if the word simpler is correct, but certainly simpler and, a more, and more linear when I'm under pressure in that sort of circumstance, especially when it's time critical. In your reading and experience on that issue, do you think that thinking changes under pressure uh, and more specifically decision-making changes? Uh, it, it absolutely does. And it's, it's sort of well known that stress can impair lots of aspects of our decision-making. It's not just the ability to make the decision because certainly people can get sort of decision paralysis when they're feeling stressed. But it's even in sort of understanding what the problem is and your, your perception of the problem and how you analyse the problem or make a plan of what needs to happen. And even your ability to access your working memory. So that knowledge that you, that you have, you carry around all the time with you. When you're feeling really stressed, it's harder to actually recall that information. So there's lots of things that are, you know, are, are well documented that stress sort of interferes in, in multiple elements that are imperative to making good decisions. There's lots of research about sort of, you know, system one processing and system two processing where, you know, you're making a decision in system one processing, it's really it's intuitive, it's fast. 
and it's what emergency physicians do, you know, spend a lot of time making system one processing kind of decisions. And system two is much more analytical and deliberate, but it's also a lot slower. So it's often hard for us to make those kind of system two decisions. And so, but, but in that system one, that fast sort of intuitive kind of decision making is also very open to bias. And it's where most of the time we make errors. So it can be really difficult, especially in those time critical things when you type that part to really analytical processing is is impossible in that kind of situation. So there's lots of reasons why decision making is more difficult when you're feeling stressed. And I think there's a few things that you can do to prepare in advance that can help you make good decisions when you're feeling stressed. So do you think in that circumstance, when you're un- under that degree of stress, that it's a physical impairment, a, a mental impairment or both? It's definitely both. I think most people are quite familiar with the physical parts of feeling stressed, you know, getting sweaty, hyperventilating, getting the tremors, feeling your heart racing, all those things, what most people think of when they think about feeling stressed. But there's a whole range of um, mental impairment that happens as a result of of feeling stressed. So it's being aware of those effects and, and actively trying to mitigate them. And by mitigating the physical effects, you're actually helping mitigate the the mental effects as well. So as a, as a team leader, what's your sense of the impact of the team leader's personal response to stress on the function of the team? And do you think that's any different to the impact of the stress that is uh, manifested in other team members' responses? Absolutely. So as the team leader, your behaviour sets the tone for the rest of the group. Like if you, if you look stressed or scared or overwhelmed, that's that's how your team members are also going to feel. So if you, as the team leader, are able to moderate your own response to feeling, you know, to being in a stressful situation, you're not only improving your performance, you actually improve the whole team performance. And for me, the more stressful the event, I suppose, the more over-the-top calm and composed I, I try and, you know, sound actively because uh, it's very clear that, if you can sound like you're calm, you've got it all under control, this is all achievable, we are going to be successful, then your team believe it. Similarly, if you look rattled and scared and overwhelmed and feeling negative, then they're going to be thinking this is this is going to be a failure. So it's, it's very influential, your role as a team leader in a, in a stressful situation. So do you see a component of a negative impact from poor stress responses in other team members that can derail the process? Um, it can. I guess it depends on what role they're in and and their, the, you know, the perception of the group, I suppose, overall. Certainly, if you have somebody that's, that's actively very, very stressed as part of your your group, then it's important that you as the team leader address that with them to either, if you can, meet their needs or give them a job that's far away from a stressful situation. (laughs) (laughs) Go and look up the medical records for me. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) All right. Um, 
so there has in recent years, fortunately, developed a bit of a focus on maintaining the wellness of clinicians. And a component of that is helping people deal with these pressures and stresses. Most of the literature out there uh, on managing pressure and managing performance that, that I've seen actually comes from sporting backgrounds or the business world. How well do you see that sort of stuff translating to emergency medicine? I think it's really translatable. I think there's there's a heap of literature in quite a few different sectors. You're right, heaps in sport, heaps in business, heaps in special forces, military. I loved reading an article, a trial had been done with you know people that work in the stock market, and I guess they're all jobs that require people to make critical decisions, and I guess people's version of critical if you're a stock you know if you're talking finance as opposed to human life is up for debate but they're making time critical decisions that have significant you know their, their decisions have significant consequences so I, I think it's all very relatable i i think that most emergency physicians who've been working clinically for some time 15 20 years have developed these skills they're just self-taught because otherwise they don't stay in clinical medicine. And I think where we have a we're a long way behind the other sectors is that we're not very good at teaching it from the outset. You know, we, we sort of leave it to people, we call it experience and we leave it up to people to sort of find out for themselves along the way. But I I, I think there's lots of room for improvement in emergency medicine and teaching this from the outset, teaching these skills is it, it's a core part of the job. And people have then have it early in their career as, you know, just part of their toolkit and are much more likely to enjoy their work and have longevity in it. Yeah, I agree, particularly the training component. I think for decades, probably generations, the approach to those sorts of, if you like, soft aspects of medical care, clinical care, have not been deemed important components of training and in, and in some ways it's because we've not actually had the metacognition, the sort of thinking about how we do things um, process to it and focused much more on the, I guess, the hands-on, the, uh, the particular clinical aspects and clinical interventions that we carry out on the patients rather than the processes we carry out on ourselves. I think front-loading that in the, in the training program would be an important step forward. We're going to go through a couple of sketchy clinical scenarios just to uh, just to get a sense of uh, some of the technique because you've been talking about um, how the the stress and pressure can be managed just to talk through some of the ways that people can approach these circumstances that will help cope with it or help uh, help manage the way through so the first one we'll start with is you've just finished managing a serious trauma case 60% surface area burns associated blast injury the burns included face and neck so there was a required surgical airway and a blast injury as well as burns involved patently a very high pressure setting. Your registrar helped you in the case and comes to you a little shell-shocked, but pretty impressed at how you managed to pull it together, such a complex high-acuity presentation. Um, they want to know what your strategies were to help with staying on top of that sort of case and managing the pressures. How would you guide them? So when I first hear that there's going to be something that's obviously high pressure coming, it's just taking a few minutes to prepare myself. So reframing you know, any sort of negative thoughts about what's coming, 
getting rid of those thoughts of being overwhelmed or that's too much, it's going to be too hard or it's, you know, too scary and, and turning it into something that's achievable and, you know, a challenge and sort of getting myself G'd up to rise to the challenge. And then when you're in the moment, it's taking a few big combat breaths. I like to call them combat breaths, but lots of people know them as square breaths or four-second breathing. So it's basically breathing in for four seconds, holding your breath for four seconds, breathing out for four seconds, and then holding your breath for four seconds. And then doing that just a couple of times can really help moderate all those adrenaline-fueled effects that we were talking about earlier, both the physical effects and the mental effects. So there's this acronym, Beat the Stress Fool. So B for breathe, T for talk, S for see, and F for focus. So the, the first part of it is breathe, so doing a few of those big four-second combat breaths. And then the T is for talk, so just doing some positive self-talk, as I say, you know, sort of G myself up to rise to the challenge. You know, saying that it is achievable and also making it I, I also try and keep it quite you know just try and break it down into simple achievable bits essentially so you, try, you know you're making a list of what needs to happen and then you just work your way through each step and make it sort of a more achievable chunk break, breaking it down into chunks so that's the breathe and the talk. And then next is C. So it's actually visualising yourself doing each step well. I think that's really a lot more applicable when you're doing procedures. So for this one, you know, when you needed to do surgical airway or if you need to do an esterotomy, actually saying, yep, I know how to do this. Yep. And, uh, you know, and just give yourself a little, you can see yourself doing it and it all going well. And then the F is for focus. So this is having a way of switching yourself on to really focus both having a sort of narrow view like a spotlight on a small step but then also having like a just the outside light on having a broad beam of light where you don't lose that sort of situational awareness and that overall understanding of what you need to do and what the patient needs from you so for the you know in this so for in this case Basically, I hear these coming, I take a few minutes, you know, I prepare myself, I'm, I'm, t I'm trying very hard to get rid of any kind of negativity and make it all positive and say, yes, we can do this, this is going to be a, you know, this is going to be a great challenge, interesting case, taking a few deep breaths, keeping it simple, making my, giving myself just clear, achievable goals, little steps to work through seeing myself get through each of those steps, doing it well, um, and then being able to focus when I need to, so like really just drilling down and ignoring everything else when I'm doing the surgical airway, but then being able to, once that's that little step's complete, taking a, a step back and having that sort of overall view again to make sure that we're, we're maintaining what we need to do to get to where we need to go. So beat the stress fool. Beat the stressful, yes. Yeah, the only thing I'd, I'd uh, pour in on top of that is if the opportunity is there at the start, don't just breathe, but uh, make sure you've visited the bathroom, so that's the yeah. other B. Yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> well, that's part of the, uh, when you're the physical effects, it's that nervous wee, isn't it? That's... Yep. So, uh, and the last thing you need is to be distracted by that sort of physiological stimulus while you while you try to focus on the case. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> 
the elements of the acronym that uh, Karen has gone through here, Beat the Stress Fool, are evidence-based, distinct examples of performance-enhancing psychological skills, PEPs. I'll attach a link to an article on the topic from Analysts of Emergency Medicine from 2017. So for a different sort of scenario, you're on retrieval and you have a 41-year-old male who needs a pericardiocentesis because of a large pericardial effusion. You haven't got a cardiologist on tap, so uh, how do you approach the pressure of that scenario given that it's not the sort of procedure you would perform on a regular basis and how do you set yourself up for the best chance of success? So these sort of low-frequency, high-stakes procedures, they really lend themselves to... Um, these sort of pre-prepared um, techniques. So there's no, I mean, there's not no point, but it, it's difficult to be really performing well if you haven't thought about it in a while or it's something you learned back when you were doing the exam and you've not really practiced it since. So the key for these sort of low-frequency, high-stakes procedures especially is preparation. So... Of course, you learn the skill to start with, but it doesn't just stop there. So there are things that you can do to create what we call cognitive offloading. So there are little things that you can do in advance, like checklists, like having a standardised setup. So you set up to do the procedure exactly the same way every single time. Having sort of pre-made decision points. So if you're in charge of the airway, if the stats are less than 90%, I'm going to pull out and bag. You're not sort of making them up on the fly. They're pre-made decision points that when you are in that situation, your brain is already telling you what you need to do without you having to think about it. Or somebody else is telling you you've just reached your decision point. Yeah, that's right. If you're, if the whole team knows what the, decision, the pre-made decision point is, everybody's on board with what has to happen. I think something that we do really poorly in medicine is called, that sportsmen do very well is cognitive overlearning. So, um, you know, continuing to practice the skill even once you feel like you're pretty competent and that, you know, creating this muscle memory of just practicing and practicing and practicing. And you have to do it the same way every time. And for some of these procedures, it can be difficult to actually practice, you know, like the surgical airway or doing a... Um, uh, pericardiocentesis, like it's kind of hard sometimes to have the you know the dummies and the models and and actually physically do the procedure, but you can do it, practice it heaps and heaps and heaps of times in your mind, and that's what they call performance enhancing imagery, so or mental rehearsal. It's important to do it physically and get the tactile stuff, but then. But once you've done it a few times like that, you can actually continue to practice it just in your mind. You have to visualise yourself doing the steps, all the steps, and you have to think about it all in really specific detail. So you, you step by step go through what's needed in the procedure, thinking about every detail, like what it feels like, what you're saying to people, what the, the items feel like in your hands, even your emotions. You're trying to replay all of that as true to form as you can and you make these little mini movies and there's you know because there's only a certain number of these really high stakes procedures that we have to have that are in our toolkit so there's no reason why you can't have a little movie for each of these things that you could play in your own head 
to rehearse doing the procedure and, and of course you rehearse it as if you're doing it really well and then on the day when you need to do it you can just play you just download and play that video through your mind you know exactly what you're doing and then you can do it on the day yeah it's interesting isn't it I, the, over the years and i've heard of heard of uh, other colleagues or um, other emergency physicians who would set themselves up a routine of uh, i've got a list of 10 procedures that i i need to be pretty well comfortable with that are going to be high stakes but not very common so as I work my way through the working week as I go to work in the morning or when I get to work in the morning I'll just play that video for that for one technique each day so you've gone through them all in sequence for me one of the benefits of teaching was the trigger that I would use rather than playing the video in my own head would be talking it through as though I was teaching somebody how to do the procedure uh, that would force me to focus on the details in the process. So, the, yeah, I agree. There are multiple ways of keeping that fresh in your head so that your cognitive load at the time when you actually ca- and stress load when you're actually faced with the procedure is, is not so strong. The other thing I think that comes out of it is you realise that for a lot of those procedures, the technical skill is not high. It's actually the decision to to proceed that often uh, creates the the stress. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're going to finish up with the last question, and that's really in relation to very commonly you'll be in, particularly as an emergency physician, but working in emergency departments generally, you get tied up in these high-stress situations, and then you have to walk away and deal with someone who's coming with a toothache, or uh, <laughs> which is important to them, but in comparison to what you've just been doing is, uh, is a fairly sharp paradigm shift. So... After you've completed whatever the pressure case is and then you've had to return to more routine work, that can be difficult because you're still distracted by reflecting on the case you've just had. Are there any strategies you use to get your head in the right space to focus on the next case or the next hour or two in the ED? Uh, I think it's important to have a quick debrief. So I do try and have like just a five-minute group discussion immediately following you know, sort of resolution, whether it's the patient going to ICU or being retrieved or dying. And I think the most important part for me about that is actually just getting all the information. I think the thing that often makes me ruminate about cases is if I don't have all the, you know, bits of the puzzle, it often leaves you wondering about things. So I I find it really helpful to have that five-minute debrief where we talk through the case because often there'll be someone has, has actually spoken to us to a family member and fills in all a lot of this back knowledge or somebody else has looked up the the medical records and can give you some other information that you might not have had before i think it can be really really helpful but for me after that sort of quick debrief i actually try and lock it away and i think locking it away is helps me function for the rest of the shift however long that is i think that the risk with locking it away is not pulling it out to think about it later so the key for me is i I kind of lock it away i just i just put it in a box and i'm really mindful of the the post adrenaline dump where once you sort of get off that high of of high stress you feel physically and mentally exhausted so i try and just press pause on all of those emotions and to put it in a box and, and think about it later. I'm lucky in that I, I live out of town. So for me, 
um, I, it's almost an hour for me to get home and it, it works really well for me because it's, it's the perfect time for me to think about things and process things. So I get to the end of my shift, get in the car and then I can actually spend a bit of time just pondering things and thinking about things and um, working my way through it a bit and having a chance to sort of process it. I think it's more difficult if you live really close to the to the hospital and you go from lots of chaos there and then in a blink of an eye you're home to I don't know what your household is like but my household is chaos <laughs> um, you know, so you go from being team leader really high stress and then you know and then you go home and your mum or dad or partner and I've got three little kids and it's it's kind of different chaos and stress I think it's really important if you do live somewhere close by to the hospital that you give yourself time, whether that's going for a walk, having it just a few minutes before you drive home. I know one of the other doctors here really likes to swim laps. They find swim laps a great time to just work through things as they're going up and down the pool. So for me, I try and just lock it in a box and go back to doing what needs to be done for the rest of the shift but you just got to remember to, to pull it out and have a chance to think about it to work and through it. your emotions about it as well because all these things make you feel i think we're good at analyzing our medicine and analyzing our decisions and thinking about all the academic part of it we're not very good at thinking about how you felt about it and all that sort of emotional stuff that comes with some of these really highly stressful situations. No, agreed. Well, that's been great, Karen. It's been very useful getting your insights on that sort of stuff. And for the people who might listen in on this particular podcast, uh, you would have picked up there that not only is Karen sort of got a stressful job, but has to go home and be a mum of three kids. <laughs> Just as well as a long drive home. Yeah. That's why people go, oh, you live out of town, why? And it's like, oh, it's an hour of peace between yeah. one area of chaos and the other area of chaos. All right. So thank you again and, and hope to speak to you soon, Karen. Fabulous. Thank you, Andrew. Okay. Good on you. Bye-bye. Bye.